Okay, good morning. Today is 2-2-23, February, not September, February 2, uh, 2023. <laughs> Moving right along. The title of today's talk is, uh, the working title is Anicca and Eating Bitter. You may uh, notice the uh, profusion of creative titlings that I enjoy. Comments on the Chinese phrase ku, eat bitter, chi as eat ku as bitter, translated by Chong Manqing, who was a top-level Tai Chi Qigong master, I think from China and Taiwan. Chong Manqing uh, looks like a very good friend of mine from high school. He translated ku as invest in loss. And I'll look at that. Discussion of the aphorism, assume loss, meaning we're going to be discussing the phrase assume loss, and the critical importance to spiritual development of understanding impermanence, which is anicca in Buddhist Pali language. And so what's going on here? Well, I was thinking recently about the inevitability of change or the loss of the pleasant, the pleasurable mind states that that uh, arise um, now and then or regularly, meaning I'm feeling well. Hey, hey. Well, these are impermanent mind states or all phenomena is transitory. It arises, persists, and passes away. We know that intellectually. We don't necessarily... Um, we, we we don't necessarily uh, know it in emotionally and viscerally. Knowing intellectually is not the same as a visceral, grounded knowing. Visceral in the body, deep-centered knowing is um, affects the emotional. I feel less disappointment because I know that all happiness is transitory. Uh, like that. And the phrase that came to my mind immediately was assume loss, or how do we deal with this? Assume loss means assume um, the loss of what you want. Now, that, again, has to be qualified. The phrase, Chun Manqing's translation of ku, which is simply eat bitter, uh, translation into invest in loss, which I'm going to present uh, one of his students' commentaries on that, um, that itself needs to be unpacked. <laughs> so every um, pithy aphorism needs to be unpacked to understand the um, meaning and application. Uh, deeper meanings or the range of meanings, a range of meanings and applications to relevant to personal life. Uh, all phenomena are impermanent, whatever subject to arising, subject to passing away. Knowing that viscerally is um, will be measured by the degree of the degree to which we fall into discouragement and um, disappointment when um, in the face of changing conditions, particularly the loss of happiness and well-being, uh, the first flush of love, the honeymoon phase the um, initial burst of joy acquiring an item that I think I like so much. Oh, this jade bracelet is so lovely. Um, or whatever one wants. Um, falling out of love. Uh, these types of experiences, um, the, the gradual lessening of the happiness of pleasure and gain and praise and honor, right? The four of the happy worldly winds. Uh, <clears throat> to the degree that we can be at peace or be not terribly upset by inevitable loss of uh, good, the, the inevitable changing of mind states equals the loss of happiness. It doesn't mean we live in hell. It just means that all pleasurable, you know, kusala dhamma, 
states are impermanent to the degree that we're not yet fully enlightened and beyond uh, you know impermanence so um then we would be naturally less emotionally upset and that shows i'd say a more visceral centered grounded embodied knowing not the same as intellectual knowing it's deep knowing then the phrase assume loss is important assume change which equals the loss uh, to some degree of the feelings associated with happiness and pleasure and gain and praise and whatever you like assume loss is um and under it requires of course or is um, an understanding of anicca and i believe gautama said i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm kind of sure gautama actually said something like if one understands anicca impermanence one can understand the whole of the buddha dhamma the whole of the tathagata's teaching can be understood by a profound and deep understanding of anicca impermanence because actually by anicca one will understand um the other two characteristics meaning anatta no self and dukkha suffering or stress or dissatisfactoriness that all phenomena are uh, transitory is itself a basis for stress or dissatisfaction that all phenomena are indeed um, uh, uh, transitory actually when you really look into the nature of that which appears to be transitory what appears to be transitory is itself transitory and actually there's reification <clears throat> meaning we're assuming or we're perceiving we're perceiving things changing but actually that which appears to be changing itself is changing meaning there's not a solid object changing there's change there's changing appearance there's changing form and then there's changing you know phenomenal um, experience outside and inside too my anger will lessen my joy or happiness will lessen lessen over time because they're impermanent mind states my joy my well-being my satisfaction my fulfillment may well a, a certain quality certain certain types of sukha will um pass away fast or pass away mm, observably or change and lessen other kind of well-being is different that's equanimity that's a little bit different so upekka equanimity serenity samatha states of samadhi as a, a, a long-term conditions they also are impermanent but they last much longer it's different than sukha um associated with um acquisition or achievement uh, of a physical activity it's a very subtle difference there's short term sukha and long term sukha sukha as pleasure or well-being short term is associated with physical activity long term is associated with um spiritually based mind states <laughs> changes of mind catalyzed by physical um gain in short term changes in mind catalyzed by spiritual reorientation or uh consciousness transformations are long term if you know what i mean so assume loss is useful chong man ching um <laughs> mistranslated or as a typical everybody does this it's just you know the the uh, vast sinkhole of um mistranslation or distranslation dis <laughs> this topic <laughs> uh this topic trans uh, translation he translated chu ku as invest in loss it's not invest in loss it's eat bitter but there's a topic a page man named Scott Park Phillips looks a little like a friend of mine and looks a little like Robin Williams so probably a wanderer December 19 2012 said he said I've written about this topic before um I recommend you go over to the Yang family Tai Chi forum and read what expert translators ooh, ooh, say invest in loss means 
Yang family is Chong Wanqing's um, lineage of Tai Chi teaching. Here's the question, or here's a, something he put in here. Uh, something somebody named Mark Hennessy translated. Uh, this is the, the quote. I am told of a quote from Chong Wanqing, quote, Moreover, a beginner cannot possibly avoid losing and defeat. So if you fear defeat, you may as well not even begin. If you want to study, begin by investing in loss. And investment in loss eliminates any greed for superficial advantages. Concentrating your chi to become soft is the only proper method to invest in loss. So he's translated chi ku, eat bitter, as invest in loss. It means assume there'll be loss. Uh, where he's saying don't fear defeat. Um, a beginner cannot possibly avoid losing and defeat. Uh, maybe uh, everyone but the fully enlightened won't be able to avoid loss and defeat. That all mind states are impermanent means uh, the ones you prefer will change and thus be lost. Losing the, temp the, the positive mind states as a gain their change as a loss right so positive or positive in the sense of um ego syntonic or what i like preferred mind states there are many of them pleasure happiness joy um uh love kindliness warmth affection bliss ecstasy up the ladder these preferred mind states are not a problem. They're wonderful. What's commonly felt to be a problem is the fact that they're transitory and um, degrade. And that making peace with that inevitable degradation, which is felt as a loss, is the basis of eat bitter. And so uh, applying Chong Manqing's uh, guidance for Tai Chi or Bagua practitioners to um us not being martial artists but uh, seekers of uh, love light um if you fear defeat um you're going to have a hard time one cannot possibly avoid loss of uh, the inevitably the in intrinsically impermanent preferred mind states or world conditions uh, beautiful women lose their beauty, handsome men lose their handsome, wealthy people age, or bodies age, and, uh, you know, today's uh, five-star dinner is uh, fetid uh, shit tomorrow in the toilet. That's just the way it is here. And that doesn't, you know, that's not a a call to bitterness or nihilistic resignation or depression or anything. It's just accepting the reality of phenomenal process in this dimension is akin to invest in loss, is akin to learning the way of chiku. And he's saying, if you want to study, begin by investing in loss. Investment in loss eliminates any greed for superficial advantages. Well... It, it's an except. It, it, I don't know. You know, greed is not a good idea, of course. But sometimes we feel greedy. Uh, superficial advantage is that there's advantage and there's gain, but it's always impermanent. That just should be known. And the the guidance here is concentrating your chi to become soft. Is the only proper method to invest in loss. Translated, the only way to truly learn to eat better. To learn to make peace with eating bitter is concentrating your chi and becoming soft. And that's Wu Wei. And that is associated with, you know, not fighting when fighting is futile and having a healthy, um, a, a healthy uh, wariness of uh, grasping an aversion. Sometimes I f I'm full of anger or I, 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 I feel anger or hate or loathing or angry or frustrated. Okay. Sometimes I feel great longing or lust or desire or hunger or emptiness or dissatisfaction. Okay. Um, 
um, understand that we regularly get stuck and we can yet um, pull out of getting stuck by accepting and stop and 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 uh, not struggling and so stop struggling is a part of uh, how one learns to eat bitter so he goes on invest in loss is an expression which has become very widespread as part of an English language explanation of Tai Chi push hands, Bagua also. As Lewis Swaim or Swain explains, it's two characters, eat and loss, chi, ku. Any fluent Chinese speaker would hear that, eat bitter. It's not even, it's not uh, eat loss, it's eat bitter. And then he's talking about how to apply it to Tai Chi practice. Uh, and relates it to Muhammad Ali saying, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champ, meaning take your lumps and uh, keep going, uh, pay your dues, dot, dot, dot. Uh, he gives the example, somebody named Paul Cohen gives the example, tells a story of Gu Jian, some character in Chinese history, uh, saying he was conquered. I mean, he was uh, either military or, or a leader, political leader. It's not clear here. Gu Jian was conquered. He totally accepted the most humiliating subordination for years before getting his kingdom back by trickery. Then he secretly plotted a strategy of total revenge over 20 years. The way he kept himself focused on the task of revenge, the task of revenge, was by wearing furs in summer and going bare-chested in winter, by hanging an extremely bitter gallbladder, meaning some animal's gallbladder, from his doorway, which he would lick every time he walked under it, licking the bitter. So eating bitter or eating loss means to accept, public, to accept defeat publicly while secretly planning total revenge. So that's his interpretation of Gu Chi or Chi Ku. Accept defeat publicly while secretly planning total, totally revenge, total revenge. Well, that's one way of looking at it. Um, I'm not recommending planning total revenge because you'll just go depolarizing. So, okay, that's his understanding, or maybe that's how it's done in martial arts. Uh, making peace with the inevitability of the worldly win, the unpleasant or difficult worldly wins. The worldly wins we find un unpleasant or difficult. Loss, pain, uh, blame, and dishonor. Uh, accepting that uh, what we like will pass away, or ple pleasurable mind states will pass away, and unpleasant mind states will pass away. Um, everything in its time, uh, seasons of the spirit, uh, the cycles of time, and um, this knowing that more deeply is assume is associated with this phrase: assume loss, assume there'll be loss. That, but that doesn't mean becoming morbid, or depressive, or depressed, or it's not necessary at all. Gautama is not saying, you should all be depressed and you'll understand my dharma. No. Understanding impermanence really, really well. Then, there's another webpage about West, from West China Tea. <laughs> so they understand about bitter also. There's a saying in China. This is another link I'll give you. Bu ku bu shi cha. Bu ku bu shi cha. If it isn't bitter, it isn't tea. <laughs> If it isn't bitter, it isn't 3D, I'd say. And uh, if it isn't bitter, it isn't tea. If you aren't suffering, you aren't living. If it isn't dukkha, it, it, it isn't... Um, there, there, there's no existence prior to enlightenment without dukkha. That's where you get uh, Anichanata Dukkha and the Four Noble Truths. The First Noble Truth is the truth of dukkha which is not, and, and so everybody, most people don't understand so deeply. In this page also, um, it says, they say, 
In Buddhism, the first of the Four Noble Truths simply states life is suffering. No, life is dukkha. Or conditioned experience is dukkha. Ah, dukkha is not best translated as suffering because, again, higher self and beings in quite blissful higher dimensions still are subject to dukkha, of course, because there is an intrinsic dissatisfactoriness to the reality or the continued experience of a loss and impermanence. Impermanence equals loss, loss of what you don't want. It's also gain. The gain of what you like keeps coming too. And then it's loss. But that whole plus and minus is a minus. That's called dukkha, meaning the cycle of birth and death, the cycle of gain and loss, the cycle of pleasure and its degradation and dissolution where you no longer feel the pleasure or happiness or joy or bliss that cycle that that uh, alternate alternation process that polarity continually regularly seeking finding degrading losing the degrading is the degradation of the mind states that come from successful finding so dissatisfaction, formation of desire, clinging, craving, acquisition, at best pleasure upon acquisition, at worst frustration or pain upon inability to acquire. With, with even with acquisition of objects of desire, there's the change of the mind states, that the happiness of when I first bought it goes away, the happiness of the honeymoon phase goes away, now I see he, she is the way I didn't know before. <clears throat> no longer on the best behavior, we see partnership or relationship in a sobered way, soberly, rather than from an idealizing. So that's the reality of impermanence for that which we want. Because you see, nobody seeks objects, seeks the uh, capture of an object of desire. Right? The object of attention is, in this case, an object of desire for acquisition or something associated with uh, trying to get rid of my painful state where I feel like I, I want something, I want this or that, then I'll, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be forever happy, is the thought, by the way. <laughs> That's why Gautama said, if you understand uh, impermanence, you'll know the whole of my teaching because we actually don't really we pay only lip service in our intellectual acquiescence or recognition yes of course everything's changing everything's changing of course of course of course but when we say i want this we're not saying i want this whose result will be a happiness that degrades <laughs> ah, that doesn't sound fun hey man you're such a bummer party pooper don't rain on my parade. So, yeah, we seek for a, a, the happiness that we feel will be abiding, but it isn't. It's never. No states are abiding. They're all impermanent. So nobody thinks, I want to get this for a temporary happiness that'll lead to a dissatisfaction and a further seeking and a further hungering, craving, tanha, beyond that. No, 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 no. We think, I'm going to go get it then I'll be happy, in parentheses, unendingly. <laughs> Something like that. And so, okay, <clears throat> the first noble truth is that um, conditioned uh, experience is dukkha. And uh, <clears throat> uh, then there's a lot of comments here <laughs> on uh, Chinese culture. And... Um, this is not a bad bad point uh, from this West China tea, their perspective here. Anyone who has spent time in China knows that Chinese people are not a miserable people. <clears throat> They're actually far less depressive than Eastern Europeans and Slavs and Scandinavians, who are much more morose, I think. He goes on. Laughing, smiling, dancing, especially old ladies, singing, karaoke, getting drunk, eating delicious food, being with family and friends, these are pretty much the main things Chinese people are into. But they do not, in general, agonize over their suffering, but rather accept it as inevitability, as much as the sun setting at night. 
They will avoid hardship and suffering at all costs, or to some degree, as any organism will, but they do not, in my experience, the author here, tend to perform a, quote, grand reckoning of their joy and sorrow and evaluate from it whether they're in the black or and that their life is worth living. He's talking about a certain <laughs> Westerner neurotic pattern of <clears throat> um, measuring one's success, more, more, one's, one's value by a certain kind of moral success, updating, continued uh, taking stock. It's sort of like checking your net asset value uh, every six hours. Uh, Chinese don't do that as much. Um, I think that's true except for those that are super wealthy and have a lot to lose. But other than that, yeah, there is a sort of acceptance that shit happens. Um, you got to eat the bitter sometimes. You have to. We have to. Or we get bitter regularly, which is the loss of pleasure or happiness and well-being. And um, also the fact that, um, you know, we regularly will have to experience what we don't want. We get what we don't want, we lose what we want that we've gotten, or it changes, or the mind state changes. Objects change, mind states change. Uh, Kamaloka, here, third density, is very much of insatiable desire. That's why it's called Kama Loka, the realm of desire, desire Loka realm. That's associated with the, the desire is um, the, the um, offspring of continual restlessness and um, a sense of insufficiency, inadequacy, existential insufficiency, which is not unusual, which, which is, you know, inevitable to, to seven-dimensional life, actually. It's called seeking. There's either, though, seeking wisely or seeking unwisely. Seeking in a self-harming or a self-empowering way, seeking to my, that's to my long-term welfare and benefit, or seeking that's to a short-term welfare and benefit, or seeking that is to no benefit, or seeking to that which is actually harmful or perilous, chaleboy, <laughs> chalebos, uh, meaning uh, dangerous, uh, perilous-related seeking. Seeking, uh, you know, death-defying uh, thrill. But in general, <clears throat> at this time in history, when we open the focus a little bit to uh, here at the end times of third density, uh, conditions are very unstable. I mean, there are a lot of people passing out of the world, <clears throat> if you understand what I'm saying, being culled and uh, liberated from the body. Uh, despite what they, though they don't want it, a lot of people dying, a lot of people breaking down mentally, a lot of people sick physically, a lot of people in mental emotional distress of one sort, a lot of people confused, a lot of people fighting and arguing and opinionated dogmatism, dogmatically uh, struggling with each other, a lot of people with their head in the sand, a lot of people who seem to be okay, maybe the majority. But who knows, right? When you see them on the street, you don't really know unless you can read their mind or in their, and their energy fields. You don't really know. We don't really know where they're at. We can if we can read their mind from their face, and that's doable. But I think there was a Plato said or someone said, you know, don't, don't be, maybe it's Paul or maybe it's in the Bible. Something like be kind to people for everyone is facing a hard, a hard struggle or hard uh, challenge. Be kind to people because they're having a hard time too. And we're having a hard time too, somewhat, some degree. And that's again going to be related to people, place, and work. Uh, do you have people in your life that are giving you trouble? Do you have people in your life that you'd rather not meet? Well, do you really need to meet them or see them as much as you do? Why are they in your life? Do they have to be? If they do have to be, maybe from family or work obligation... How can I minimize the dukkha of being with them? Then there's place and where I live, where I go. Does that fit you? Does it not? Can a change be made? Can some changes to your home be made? Is your room filthy? <laughs> Is your car a mess? Call 1-800. Something like that. Call your soul. <laughs> Call your conscience. Call the mirror. 
Do you have a problem? Call the mirror, look into it, and discover the problem and its solution. Or wait and it'll arise if you keep seeking it. And then work is like, what are you doing every day? Um, is it really in line with your values? Do you value what you're doing? Is what you're doing, do you feel good about yourself doing what you're doing? Uh, do you feel guilty? <laughs> do you feel useless? Do you feel unfulfilled? Uh, what is it? Know where you're coming from. And so if you want more light, find more dark. Yes. If you want more light and well-being, find how you're confused and in some dismay or distress or unwell. Look into the dark to amplify, to grow, grow greater light. And that's the big difference between spiritual bypassers and those willing to face the shadow or know themselves deeply with rigorous honesty, as Ra said. It's difficult, absolutely. It's not hard for me to talk for an hour, but I'm not perfect in my life, uh, bippity boppity joy all the time either. But you know, great masters are not that way either. So we have some misunderstanding. I had a session with somebody who's saying, well, if I do this and that, I can be in joy and happiness. Eh. You know, you can't just, I don't think that's, invest in loss or assume loss or eat bitter also means that it's not realistic to assume that the more free and well and balanced, healing and balance, more healed and more balanced one is, the more one is in joy and bliss. Uh, one may be in equanimity. There's deep well-being from a quiet mind. There's deep well-being from a peaceful heart, an open heart, a peaceful mind, a clear mind, clear capacity for thinking, clearly knowing when needed, as much as one can, at least to resolve confusion, resolve confusion to a, a adequately, sufficiently resolving confusion. I know I don't know everything, therefore I have confusion on many points, but I've adequately answered my doubts or wonderings to get beyond the distressing levels of confusion. The the levels of confusion or not knowing that are distressing. There are other levels of knowing or levels of confusion or qualities of confusion that are not distressing. It's not distressing to me that I don't know all the details of all my past lives. It has it was distressing to me in years past that I didn't know some. Now I know the some that eliminates the distressing uh levels of or you know portions of confusion deeper levels of confusion or not knowing are not so distressing i know i won't know till i'm out of here fine no problem so uh, resolve confuse the resolve distressing confusion <laughs> and don't worry about uh unknowing that which is not distressing yeah. something like that so at some level, that too is a kind of chiku or accepting bitterness. Uh, the bitterness for the one who wants to know everything or doesn't want to admit, I don't know, uh, of the reality that full knowing is impossible. Understanding is not of your density, as Ra said. But we can have sufficient understanding and knowing to resolve distressing confusion where there will be other levels of not knowing that could be called confusion, that are not distressing, and it's fine, and that's that. <laughs> so we're orders of a magnitude above and beyond the dogmatists here. But they're in much distress, and they just keep fighting. Then, there's a page from, I think it's a, I'm not sure who, it's a woman who didn't put her name on the front of it here. The website's called Untigering. Adventures of a Deconstructing Tiger Mother. Probably a, maybe a Chinese woman who's been a mother who, while recognizing the value of being a so-called tiger, yep, tiger mother, her name is Iris, American-born Chinese ABC, somehow ended up with kids who are Chinese-born Americans. So anyway, yeah, she's looks like she's had some challenges. <clears throat> but uh, this is not, a, not, not unuseful because... Not only does she understand that the, the right translation is eat bitter, 
but she understands the limitations of an unwise uh, application of that principal guidance. So the page is called The Problem with Eating Bitterness. And she said, as tiger parents, most of us value grit and tenacity in the face of adversity. We appreciate mottos like, no pain, no gain. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's uh, Marcus Aurelius, I believe. If it doesn't hurt, you're doing it wrong. <clears throat> That's actually wrong. <laughs> it, it, you may be doing it right and it doesn't hurt. There is gain without pain. Absolutely, there is gain without pain. But there's a lot of gain that requires pain. <clears throat> what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That's not true also. <laughs> uh, what doesn't kill you, um, harsh catalyst, may, may associate to people being wounded and mentally, emotionally damaged for the rest of an incarnation. If it doesn't hurt you, you're doing it wrong. No. Um, you can do something right, like I'm talking now. It's not, you know, 10 out of 10, but it's good enough. It doesn't really hurt me either. If it doesn't hurt, I'm doing it wrong. So my talking now doesn't hurt. I'm doing this wrong. Uh, I don't feel pain. There's no gain. Uh, not. Wrong, wrong. So be careful. A little knowledge is dangerous. It's got to be balanced with more knowledge <laughs> to not become extreme. And uh, eating bitter is surely not a call to masochism or self-punishing or self-limiting yet limitations are inevitable in life and making peace with them is wisdom and a great achievement and knowing the bitter that is inevitable and being able to make peace with it is this is the work and that's what i mean by assume loss assume they'll be lost she goes on the chinese have a f special phrase for this bearing of hardship it's a phrase that literally means to eat bitterness right see she's not playing games eat bitter and it's something the chinese have turned into an art and a virtue the ability to endure and overcome all kinds of trials is regarded as a fundamental part of the chinese character that's true i live in taiwan you know and um there are a uh, chinese uh chinese cultural stoicism before marcus aurelius <laughs> The Chinese were Stoic uh, 3,000 years ago before old Marcus Aurelius talked of uh, Sto uh, his Stoicism or uh, the Porch of Zeno's teaching, the Stoa. That's actually the Porch of Zeno's teaching was the, called the Stoa. So the people on the Stoa were called Stoics. The guys on the Stoa listening to Zeno, I guess. Uh, Something like that. The Stoicism is a long tradition in Greek philosophy and then Roman later with Marcus Aurelius. Good stuff, actually, but it has its limits. She goes on, whereas the American value of comfort often means avoidance of pain, Chinese culture accepts suffering as a natural part of life. And then she misquotes, misquotes Gautama or quotes mis, with mistranslation and puts the quote in as all life is full of suffering, pain, and sorrow. No. Uh, that's called a fake Buddha quote that she didn't realize is a fake Buddha quote. Um, all the first noble truth is Dukkha. It's not too far from this quote, but it's not the same, and the detail is quite important. It's dissatisfactoriness. Dukkha is not simply suffering or pain. There's Dukkha Dukkha and Sukha Dukkha. Hmm. And so sukkatoka is the dissatisfactoriness intrinsic to happiness and well-being, which is the fact that that experience is impermanent, it will degrade, and it's it the it itself is insubstantial. It's an insubstantial, impermanent phenomena, phenomenal display. That's the problem. That's dukkha. That that all conditioned, uh, unenlightened experience. Uh, without having broken the ten fetters fully, um, is uh, transitory and insubstantial. And you can't make a home, and you can't find um, long-term well-being in the transitory and the insubstantial. All that we seek that gives us some happiness is transitory and, and insubstantial. 
that's the dukkha. And so they work well together. Anyway, she goes on. We know how to survive. We know how to persevere. We know how to suffer. She's a tiger mom. But, she goes on, the very virtue that helps us survive tragedy and adversity doesn't necessarily help us thrive. The ability to eat bitterness can also threaten to poison us. And there's actually, she's very, she she's Chinese-American, American-Chinese, but she understands Chinese culture very well, says, unlike most Westerners who express depression through psychological symptoms, Chinese people typically manifest it through their bodies. Yes. There's even a term coined for this phenomenon called Chinese somatization. 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 Chinese somatization is the uh, physical embodying of psychological distress or mental, emotional issues being physicalized, somatized, put into the body. Um, uh, somatized symptomology. Very common in psychology but it's perhaps more common with Chinese culture and Chinese people. She goes on, the Chinese tend to experience their suffering through headaches, insomnia, chronic pain, fatigue, rather than emotional or mental distress. True. Uh, Chinese hospitals here are filled with people who have um, various conditions, headache, insomnia, chronic pain, fatigue, and want a shot and want a pill and trust the guy in the butcher jacket, the butcher coat, the white coat, and uh, that's very disheartening, actually, because uh, they support the uh, big pharma business model of uh, chronic ill health, chronic low-level ill health uh, that brings them, keeps them coming, keeps them coming in, keeps them coming back for more. So, go on, she said, it's no wonder so many of us experience pain in our bodies when we're taught to, quote, eat, or eat bitterness. The very language we use for suffering employs somatic imagery, meaning the imagery of eating something bitter as a sort of, um, as resonant with the common um, application of that guidance that leads people to somatize their mental, emotional issues and distress and, uh, you know, problems into body ailments and um, it's again it's a matter of balance not too tight not too loose if you walk around uh, as a uh, curmudgeon uh, life is suffering rah, rah, bah humbug scrooge that's too tight and a misapplication of the first noble truth understanding or teaching meanwhile if you bip bop around and think that you can uh, make a joy permanent you're self-deceiving and uh, new agey spiritual bypassers think they can chant their way to eternal bliss while they haven't broken the ten fetters uh -huh. so she goes on we consume and absorb our suffering but sooner or later our bodies betray our pain and then she has a whole long thing about very, it's very interesting. A research article about Chinese beliefs and behaviors regarding pain, illustrating the cultural value of stoicism. Asian Americans were the ones who reported lowest pain scores. <laughs> uh, Taiwan Taiwanese cancer patient study indicates cultural acceptance of uh, cultural acceptance of and high tolerance for pain, long suffering. And so that's the far end of eat eat bitter. And she brings some quotes that people thinking this way or acting this way um, who basically put up with more pain or expect pain, not, you know, understanding dukkha as pain and suffering only, um, people become sort of depressive. And she said, people say to themselves, all marriages are hard. My parents weren't that bad. I can handle the pain. Well, actually, all marriages, most marriages are hard. And my parents weren't that bad is not unreasonable because there's usually a mix of uh, 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 support and deficiency. So she's got, a, she's got her own stuff there, obviously. Maybe she doesn't want to think her parents weren't that bad. But in some sense, you can't know the balance until you've stretched first to the extremes. 
if you hate something, you might as well be honest that you really hate it. Knowing that hate is a distortion and an emotion that you'd rather not stay with for the rest of your life. But if you have some faith in yourself, you can hate freely and grieve deeply and have some trust that you won't stay there forever. You won't get stuck in hate and grief. And so you can, I hate my parents, they were so bad. Well, okay, that's a first level extreme statement, uh, if it's uh, if it's even, you know, reasonable or realistic. I hate my parents, my parents were so bad. Okay, is that the whole of it? Probably not. Meaning, maybe they were 80% bad, but they were 20% supportive and loving. Or, their bad was the best they could do. Or they really were terrible and sadistic. Okay, well, that's that. But, uh, eat bitter... It, it, it me, it's sort of um, a teaching to temper, temper your enthusiasm. <laughs> temper, temper your cheer as needed. Something like that. So anyway, she's talking about staying submissive and suffering unjustly. That's not what I'm talking about. Or she said, our ability to eat bitter thus becomes a badge of honor instead of a way to connect and empathize with others who are suffering. So she's talking about all sorts of um, excesses of an uh, internalized attitude of uh, eating bitter where people become sort of um, pessimist, pessimistic and um, even self-punishing and then accepting of pain when action, corrective action should be taken. Uh, and so ex uh, eating bitter or accepting inevitable loss or assuming uh, change obviously doesn't mean no corrective action should be taken. There are cases when corrective action must be taken. There are cases when it can't be taken. Uh, You've got to kind of look at your own, the own situation. So in any case, uh, the bottom, the, the, the deeper principle here is anicca, is impermanence. And it's a reality whether we like it or not. And accepting it is this sort of investing um, uh, a, a, a mature recognition of it. <clears throat> and so when Gautama is saying that if you understand the whole, if you understand Anicca, you understand the whole of my teaching, if indeed that's what he said, which I do think he, he did. Uh, this is a, it's a critical um, object of contempla contemplation, impermanence. And it's basically the easily observable basis of the other two, Anatta and Dukkha, actually. Because all is transitory. All is in change, and, and even that which is considered changing is in flux, changing. What does that mean? There's no substantial thing that's changing. There's change, and temporary appearances, and temporary mind states, temporary forms of objects, temporary forms of thought and emotion called mind states, or thoughts and feeling. All that is apparently substantial changing is actually insubstantial <laughs> and, and, and sort of dreamlike. Um, and the more quiet the mind is, the more one sees uh, through chittakash, the heart field, heart sky, mind sky, awareness sky of mind, which is quiet, right? There's no wind blowing or there's a gentle wind only blowing, there are no clouds, the temperature is warm, there's no burning, there's no shivering, it's a lovely sol solar sky, blue sky without much wind. By that we can see that, that the mind states that we had thought substantial are not substantial, and we had thought impermanent are actually dreamlike in and of themselves, whatever that may be. They're, it's basically flashing light. 
reflection like it's basically pranic reflection mind states or sankara sankara is basically like reflections of dancing light the mind is the sense is the sensing field that can cognize and conceptualize um, ever shimmering light and the ever shimmering light takes the form of material objects and thought and I think I'll close with uh, where I what I've referred to a few times get to it the famous uh, dialogue between uh, Manu and King Ikshaku this is from Yoga Vashishta that's a talkative bird there and this is again English translation of Yoga Vashishta it's not a pretty noise that they make <laughs> or at least I don't think it's pretty but it's louder for me than for you from Valmiki uh, Advaita Vedanta and this is chapter 117 dialogue between Manu and Ikshaku and uh, let me just basically uh, give you uh, shloka 10 through 15 uh, the king is asking Manu uh, what is the number of the worlds the origin of the creation the original state the number of worlds who's the master when and by whom it's created uh, and how can I get beyond my doubts and how can I be released from them and shloka 9 through 15 9 Manu replies I see O king that you have after a long time come to exercise of your reasoning as it's shown by your proposing to me so important a question as this meaning tell me about cosmology 10 all this that you see nothing real they're merely phenomenal and unsubstantial they meaning all this that you see resembles the fairy castles in the air and the water in the mirage of sandy deserts so anything which is not seen so also anything which is not seen in reality is accounted nothing in existence meaning anything that is not of the real has no uh, substantial existence that's anatta or sunya 11 the mind also which lies beyond the six senses is reckoned as nothing in reality but that which is indestructible is the only thing that is said to exist and is called the tatsat the only being in reality all these visible worlds and successive <coughs> <clears throat> all these visible worlds and successive creations are but insubstantial appearances in the mirror of that real substance meaning tatsat the inherent powers of brahma evolve themselves as shining sparks of fire and some of these assume the forms of the luminous worlds while others appear in the shapes of living souls others again take many other forms which compose this universe and there's nothing as bondage or liberation here except that the undecaying Brahma is all in all nor is there any unity or duality in nature except the diversity displayed by divine mind from the essence of his own consciousness some vid uh, some is true like sama and vid is vidya true knowing or true consciousness it's also satchit satchit and some vid 15 finally as it is the same water of the sea which itself is in the various forms of its waves so does the divine intellect uh, <laughs> the the mind of Brahma uh, display itself in everything and there's nothing else besides this therefore leave beside you or leave aside your thoughts of bondage and liberation and rest secure in this belief from the fears of the world
the fears of the world are the fears generated by worldly condition worldly states of consciousness uh, consciousness below the diaphragm lower triad consciousness states is the world this world and that's wherein we find fear and purification of the lower or of this world of the personal world lower triad um, moves towards fearlessness or slowly releasing fear releasing the tr the roots of triggerability to fear releasing fear releasing deep fear means dissolving the roots uh, from which fear will be triggered by catalyst the trigger ability to fear a fearful experience in the face of this this or that catalyst those roots get dissolved <laughs> And so the divine intellect displays itself in everything, and there's nothing else besides this. There's nothing as bondage or liberation here, except the undecaying Brahma is all in all, nor is there any unity or duality in nature. These are concepts, just kalpana. They're concepts associated with perception, yes. People say concept, concept, Nisargadat, you know, screamed kalpana, kalpana. Uh, kalpana is the result of limited perception conceived and thus believed to be experienced. We experience our conceived perceptions. We perceive with the five senses or with the mind sense. We interpret and conceptualize uh, its significance. We experience our conceptualizations or interpretations of those perceptions. Perception, conception, experience. As perceived, so uh, uh, as conceived or as perceived, conceived, so lived or experienced. Perception, conception, which is interpretive and thus experience. I'm a happy guy because I perceive this or that and I interpret it as happy and then say, oh, I'm a happy guy or miserable, whatever. But in truth, <laughs> beyond all that fermenting, fabrication, right? The sankaric fermentation fabrication process of conceiving, perceiving, conceiving, uh, conceiving, interpreting, labeling, concept making, thought form making of perception. Beyond that, there is no unity or duality. If I see many things, I'll call it uh, duality or, or multiplicity. When there's a sense, there's the uh, perception that all the many is in fact of one substance uh, light is of one origin is of has the same nature the the nature the true nature of all phenomena being light um, when I perceive that then I call it unity but actually both duality and unity are appellations or conceptual conceptual fermentations <laughs> fermented con conceptual labelings of um, perception when <laughs> at the end of the line there's no more experience of unity or duality there's inconceivability there's non-conceiving the non-arising of perception and vijjana and sankara of course so there's non-conceiving in moksha uh, and that is uh, knowing beyond differentiation. It's awareness beyond subjectivity. And um, yet to get to that um, profound understanding of impermanence is, is really quite critical. And it's the fast path, as Gautama really taught. And um, eating bitter is simply um, uh, an experience that one that we ought to get used to without being morbid and, and expecting pain just expect impermanence <laughs> that's called reality <laughs> meanwhile <clears throat> the mind can be in a relatively long-term wellness with equanimity but that equanimity is not the same as joy or the happiness that comes from a particular acquisition or freedom from something we didn't want the releasing of the undesired or the acquisition of the desired uh, 
those are acute forms of sukkah. Long-term sukkah is upeka, or uh, serenity, shamatha. And that's very doable, as far as I can tell. But if you go to the airport, you might get razzled. <laughs> you might get frazzled going into the big city. So in that case, so be it. All right, that's it. Uh, one hour flat. I hope this was useful. Um, I hope you don't mind my rambling. Uh, these are interesting topics. And um, you can see that many teachers um, have understood the same principles. Uh, from Buddha Dhamma, from Chinese Taoism, from Western Greco-Roman Stoicism, from Nisargadat, um, uh, from the raw material. They're all speaking on this great matter, the magnum opus, the great work. So, in any case, I hope you're well. Take good care of yourselves. See you next time, and good night.